from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, May 29th. I'm Marco Werman. Syria at a tipping point as the international outrage over the massacre of civilians in Hula grows. Survivors suggest pro-government militias were responsible. They all paint a picture of people who arrived in town from the nearby Alawite villages, knocked on their doors, asked for their menfolk and started shooting. And later, reporting inside al-Qaeda-held southern Yemen. Being blindfolded is not a nice thing. And I was already wearing the burqa, so it just made it more difficult for me to breathe. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The United Nations envoy to Syria said today that the country is at a tipping point. Kofi Annan made the statement after meeting with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in Damascus. Annan said he conveyed to Assad the grave concern of the international community over the ongoing violence in Syria. That includes the massacre of more than 100 civilians, many of them children, in the town of Hula last week. A report by the U.N. Human Rights Office today said most of the victims were shot at close range. The Syrian government denies any responsibility for the massacre, but the U.S., Britain, and other Western nations have now taken the extraordinary diplomatic step of expelling Syrian ambassadors and other senior diplomats. Martin Shulov is following the story for The Guardian from Beirut in neighboring Lebanon. He spent last week in Syria. Martin, what is the latest on what happened in Hula and who did it? The UN peacekeeping chief has said that he believes that the Alawite militias, the pro-regime militias, were probably responsible for what took place. Uh, We've spoken to a number of survivors from that massacre in Hula over the last couple of days. Uh, They all paint a picture of people who arrived in town from the nearby Alawite villages late in the afternoon on Friday or early on Saturday knocked on their doors, asked for their menfolk, and started shooting. You know, one video I've seen on YouTube of children killed, allegedly, in the Hula Massacre, I mean, it's gruesome, it's heartbreaking, but uh, there are also people around them, uh, presumably anti-Assad people, who are raising the babies, and they seem to be exploiting the situation. What do you make of all that? In some ways... That's a, that's a fair criticism. In other ways, they're saying, look, we will, we will do what we need to do. We will show you who we need to show in order to get the world's attention here. We need help. Uh, the world is, is focused on what has happened in, in Hula at the moment. Uh, this particular event has galvanized world attention. And they're saying this is our moment. We're going to use this to make sure things change. Today, uh, UN envoy Kofi Annan met with top Syrian officials. What are they talking about at this point? They're talking about his peace plan, which was launched six weeks ago, which basically involved both sides standing down and moving towards a negotiated peace settlement. That hasn't happened. So Mr. Anan is in Damascus saying to Mr. Assad, look, this is your last chance. This, this country cannot sustain any more of this. 
today we've seen a, a very strong international reaction, the first for quite some time, with a, a number of Western states kicking out the Syrian uh, ambassadors or heads of mission. And the message very clearly to Mr. Assad from Anan is that, uh, you know, it's five minutes to midnight. Mm. I mean, last chance or what? I mean, we've uh, seen several last chances so far for Assad. And that would be the calculation that Assad would be making. I mean, he, he would be sensing that the West are bluffing on this, that they're not going to send NATO jets flying in across the horizon, that the Americans don't have an appetite for any ground invasion or any in military intervention at all. They're also calculating, and probably correctly, that Turkey, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states won't do anything without the Americans taking the lead. So I wouldn't be surprised if Assad calls their bluff. I'm just curious to know, Martin, there in Beirut, where you are right now, how are you sensing what Kofi Annan has called a tipping point in Syria? Is it evident? Does it feel like there's a gathering storm of forces? It does, actually. In the last couple of weeks, there certainly has. Uh, uh, across the border in Syria, there is a sense of, of a gathering storm, no doubt about that. Um, the predominantly Sunni uh, uprising believes it's reached a moment. It's, it's, it's long past the point of no return. They have sensed also that help isn't coming. Uh, mm. from the West. And uh, that that is galvanizing for them. They are they are making they're in a process of making decisions about what do we do now? Who do we turn to? Martin Chulov of The Guardian newspaper speaking with us from Beirut about the current situation in Syria. Thank you very much, Martin. You're welcome. As we heard, the Syrian government blames terrorists for much of the violence there, but few outside Syria believe that. In Yemen, there's no doubt that the government has a huge terrorist problem. Recent political instability has weakened the Yemeni government's hold on its territory. The local al-Qaeda affiliate has taken advantage of that, grabbing control of much of southern Yemen. The U.S. has stepped up its drone strikes there, hoping to help the government, but southern Yemen remains an al-Qaeda stronghold. After months of negotiations with the militants, reporter Gaith Abdullahad and director Safa al-Ahmad of our partner program Frontline were able to enter the al-Qaeda-held region. Their documentary, Al-Qaeda in Yemen, airs tonight on PBS. Safa al-Ahmad says it was unnerving to be under the constant watch of al-Qaeda handlers. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, as as a woman, you, you have specific concerns with Al-Qaeda. And uh, I was trying to be super, super careful, like not to walk the wrong way. You know, when you're filming, you need to do angles and you kind of forget yourself. And I was that worried me the most. It's like, you know, it just takes one wrong move for them to to possibly like feel offended and decide, you know, that's it. <laughs> We're shipping them off. I mean, at uh, one point, uh, Gaith goes to a prison where some detainees are kept by Al-Qaeda yes. and you, you ask to go and they say, yes, but you've got to be blindfolded and they shove you in the car. Right. What was that like? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> being blindfolded is not a nice thing. And I was already yeah, completely covered. Being blindfolded covered. by Al-Qaeda is a, Yeah, and I was worse. already wearing the burqa, so only my my eyes were showing. It just made it more difficult for me to breathe. So it's like you felt a little uh, more uneasy. It, the prison was a very specific situation, as in, uh, in the town them, uh, itself, they were more relaxed, right? But when we got into that prison, they were super edgy. So going through these towns and villages that are now under al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula control, what were they like? What's happening there? 
Well, I think when we visited, uh, it was tightly controlled in a way that I, I can't comfortably say that I knew what the natural situation would have been there. Um, they made a point of telling us that they're providing water and electricity. Um, and they abolished taxes. They, they were really into running the town. Like they have their own Sharia courts. Um, people were coming in that had... Uh, cases that have been waiting for 15 years to resolve. And of course, the, the judges were, you know, resolving them like that. So it made a big difference, I think, for the people on the ground in that way. And uh, Safa, did you see evidence of what the Yemeni government is doing or not doing that helped you understand why Al-Qaeda in, in the Arabian Peninsula has managed to subdue so many towns and villages? Well... The, effectively, the Yemeni government in the south uh, has become defunct. They really are not functioning as a proper government. They're not providing basic services and things like that. Like even in Jahar, before Al-Qaeda took it over, the army hadn't been there for two years, right? So they didn't really like attack the town and you know kill the army and, and then take it over. The army wasn't there. We often equate al-Qaeda with the Taliban because of the Afghanistan experience. But but in Yemen, are, are the trappings of that kind of relationship evident? I mean, no music, oppression of women. I mean, is it a different situation? It's a very different situation. In Yemen, what we had observed is that, especially in the second town we went to, Azan, uh, the judge there was telling us, listen, we learned our lesson from Iraq. The thing, the atrocities they committed in Iraq really was the push uh, that caused them to complete, uh, to, to lose power in Iraq, right? And he's like, we learned our lesson. We're not going to do that. So they are, uh, they worked really hard on what they like to call the Hearts and Minds campaign. Mm. Uh, let's keep people happy. I mean, they connected electricity to towns. They haven't had electricity in 20 years. Fuad uh, was giving us a little tour of the town, and he's like, uh, yeah, we haven't banned the smoking, or they chew qat. Uh, it's, it's a, a plant. Stimulant, narcotic, yeah. yeah. And so he's like, they didn't ban that, right? And he's like, it's not now. You know, mm. it's not the time. One thing at a time. Yeah, one thing at a time. So obviously they're being more pragmatic. Well, it's a compelling and, uh, I've got to say, brave bit of reporting you and Gaith did. Safa Al-Ahmad, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Safa Al-Ahmad directed Al-Qaeda in Yemen, which airs on Frontline on PBS stations tonight. A Russian Internet security company says it's discovered a new malicious piece of software infecting computers across the Middle East. The malware is called Flame, and officials at Kaspersky Labs say it's infected nearly 200 computers in Iran alone. But machines in Syria, Sudan, and the Palestinian territories have also taken a hit. Experts are still trying to figure out how much damage Flame can do and who designed it. The world's Clark Boyd reports. Kaspersky engineers say they found Flame while doing some other work for the United Nations International Telecommunication Union. The malware, Kaspersky notes, may have been out in the wild, infecting computers for as many as five years before being detected. That's in part because it seems to be targeted not at millions of machines, but at computers in the Middle East. Experts suspect that its purpose is national espionage. Up until now, the Stuxnet virus, which supposedly targeted centrifuges at Iranian nuclear facilities, was the most sophisticated ever seen. But Miko Hupanen of the Finnish antivirus company F-Secure says Flame is in a class by itself. I mean, just the size of this thing, it's like 20 times larger than what Stuxnet was. And Stuxnet was thought to be the cutting edge of how complicated and, and large 
and encrypted malware can be. Engineers at Kaspersky say Flame can take screenshots and log instant messaging chats. It's also said to be able to turn on a PC's microphone and record conversations. In other words, a whole lot more than Stuxnet or its file-stealing cousin, Dooku. Boldajar Benchath is with the Laboratory of Cryptography and Systems at Budapest University. The other huge difference is that it is much more sophisticated than uh, the other tools. Most likely it is capable to use your Bluetooth device to do some uh, problem. Uh, Most likely it can uh, work with your network to infect other computers or steal data. The big questions, of course, are who might have built and deployed Flame and why. The usual suspects are criminals, so-called hacktivists like Anonymous, and governments. F-Secure's Miko Hupanen goes with the process of elimination. This particular malware has obviously taken a lot of time and most likely millions to develop, and yet there's no obvious way it's extracting money from infected computers. So which pretty likely means it's not done by the criminals. This is way beyond the capabilities of any hacktivist group, which leaves us with a governmental attack. Due to the target list, suspicion has turned toward the United States and Israel. Iran claims both nations were behind the Stuxnet attack, a charge both the U.S. and Israel have denied. U.S. military and intelligence agencies wouldn't comment at all on flame today. But on Israeli armed forces radio, the country's deputy prime minister, Moshe Ya'alon, didn't exactly shed a tear. It is certainly reasonable that whoever sees the Iranian threat as significant would take all available measures including those that could harm the Iranian nuclear program. Iran has said that it believes Flame is responsible for, quote, recent incidents of mass data loss in the country. The country's National Computer Emergency Response Team said today it had developed and was ready to distribute a homegrown tool to wipe Flame from infected machines. Experts say that because of Flame's size and complexity, it could take years before its design and purpose is fully understood or to even find more clues about who might have written it. One computer security analyst put it this way, The scary thing for me is that if this is what the creators were developing five years ago, I can only think what they're developing now. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. Still ahead on the program, how to repopulate an empty hive and where to find the right queen bees to do it on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Massive demonstrations in Montreal have been going on now for more than 100 straight days. The protest began when Quebec's Liberal Party tried to hike tuition rates for college students. But the sometimes violent street rallies have exploded into a much wider debate in French Canada over civil liberties and the future of popular social programs. North Country Public Radio's Brian Mann reports. Thousands of students marched through Montreal's commercial district, chanting, pounding on pots and pans. Most like Gretchen King, a communications student at McGill University, wear a bright red ribbon the symbol of a movement that's rocked this city for three months. I'm here to protest the ongoing tuition hike, which has yet to be negotiated in any way by the Liberal government. On this night, the march continues well past midnight, the crowd swelling as it snakes through neighborhoods and parks. One young man wearing the black jersey of the anarchist movement sets off a massive firecracker. The crowd sees as cops in riot gear move in to make an arrest. 
Protests like this one have become commonplace here, with two or three demonstrations each day. Earlier this month, students shut down the metro with smoke bombs. I don't think there are a lot of police services in North America that have been living through 260-something protests in 102 days. This is a lot. Ian Lafreniere is a commander with Montreal's police. YouTube videos have circulated widely showing cops in riot gear hosing crowds with pepper spray and using what critics describe as excessive force. More than 2,500 people have been arrested so far, a handful on terrorism-related charges. Lafreniere acknowledges that police are exhausted and frustrated. But he says the city is doing its best to maintain order. It's hard also because you're facing people throwing rocks at you. So you need a lot of tolerance, a lot of patience. But a growing number of political observers say Quebec's government has mishandled the protests. In a speech broadcast last month on RDI television, the province's premier, Jean Charest, seemed to mock the students. Montreal's mayor, meanwhile, described protesters as kids who should be brought to heel by their parents. In effect, they treated the students like children. And, you know, the students are not children, they're adults. Many of them are idealistic, many of them impassioned by this struggle. Antonia Maioni is a professor of political science at McGill University. After first discounting the protest, she says the Charest government then overreacted in the opposite direction. His government pushed through a controversial emergency measure earlier this month called Law 78 that restricted street marches and political rallies, including more than 10 people. It also required students to move picket lines that block access to college buildings. In a province where street protest is part of the culture, Mayoni says Law 78 sparked an immediate backlash. So there are many people who are saying now, I'm not for or against tuition hikes. It's not about tuition hikes anymore. It's about what the provincial government is trying to do to our freedom of expression. Mayoni says the protests have also widened to include a debate over other austerity measures that the Charest government has proposed as a way to ease the province's growing budget deficits. For their part, protesters seem delighted at what they view as Charest's missteps and have taken up mocking him in return. Protester Gretchen King says a movement that began over tuition hikes now hopes to topple the provincial government. I think a growing number of people believe Charest should resign. And that's what the conclusion has been. is not that he's messed up, that he should be gone. Political pressure is growing here as Montreal moves toward its crucial summer tourist season and hotels are reporting a drop-off in visitors. Charest has already sacked two top officials in his cabinet, including Quebec's education minister. Negotiations with students continue today. For The World, I'm Brian Mann. A protest of a different sort was launched last night. In this case, it's the Russian government using Twitter to protest statements made by the U.S. ambassador in Moscow. Ambassador Michael McFall had given a talk to students at one of Russia's most prestigious universities. The American diplomat was critical of Russian officials on several fronts. For example, McFall said Russia offered the government of Kyrgyzstan a bribe in exchange for shutting down a U.S. airbase there. The response from Russia's foreign ministry officials was unusual, according to The Guardian's Moscow correspondent, Miriam Elder. Rather than sending, you know, a diplomatic note or or a letter, they decided to take to their Twitter account pretty late last night and just one after the other started slamming McFall for being unprofessional, for criticizing their media, and it just kind of turned into this global Twitter storm. Now, Ambassador McFall has actually used Twitter to make his points since he arrived in Moscow recently. Uh, This is not the first time, is it? 
No, that's right. I mean, it's part of this wider State Department push, as I understand it, to speak more directly with the people in the country where the ambassadors are based. But again, he's not the one who brought this to Twitter. It was the foreign ministry from their official Twitter account that decided to make this all public. He he simply reacted about four or five tweets in trying to point out to the foreign ministry Twitter account that he, in fact, uh, was giving a talk that was based around the progress that had been made in U.S.-Russia relations in, uh, in recent years. Now, Carl Bildt, the Swedish foreign minister, took to his Twitter account to write, I see that Russia MFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, has launched a Twitter war against U.S. Ambassador McFaul. That's the new world, followers instead of nukes. Better. So, Miriam, is Twitter acting as a sort of pressure release valve here? I think McFall's use of Twitter has been really quite controversial in Russia. This is a government that stands on ceremony. And for him to sort of bypass official channels and speak directly with Russians, speak directly with Russian democracy activists, among the other people he speaks to, is taken with, I think, a degree of criticism inside the, the corridors of power here. So you're saying maybe it's better than a nuke, but uh, all this back and forth on Twitter could uh, end up somewhere that people possibly don't want to be? I think it's definitely better than nukes, but I think the the potential effect is more that it's it's not necessarily helping the U.S.-Russia relationship. Russia prioritizes uh, secrecy and high-level contacts, and uh, it's not clear what it's doing for the U.S.-Russia relationship that McFaul, for you know his own possibly noble causes, is trying to create a new form of communication. Ambassador McFaul is not a career diplomat. He's a former Stanford University professor. And in response to this incident, one of his tweets said that he is still learning the craft of speaking more diplomatically. Do you think his combative style, if we can call it that, has been effective? It depends on what the goal is. If his goal is to piss off the Russian government, then it's working. I suspect his goal uh, is rather opposite. He has been the architect of the so-called reset to bring U.S. and Russian relations to a better level. Uh, It doesn't seem like it's quite working in that direction. So what do you think this Twitter war tells us about the possibilities for U.S.-Russian cooperation at this point? I mean, they disagree on so many critical issues right now. Can the reset still be effective? I think, uh, as do many analysts, that the reset died some time ago. We've seen such a huge amount of criticism of the U.S. ever since Putin started facing his own domestic problems here. He's really been blaming it on the U.S. State Department. As for what this means for cooperation going forward, one has to ask why all of a sudden has this exploded so publicly? It started on Twitter. Uh, Today, we had some Kremlin officials speaking about it uh, to the press. And it's coming at a time when Russia is under a lot of pressure to uh, be more cooperative in terms of Syria. And I can't help but think that maybe this is a sort of like distraction device, you know, create another storm to try to distract from another. It's, it's really incomprehensible otherwise. Miriam, good to speak with you. Miriam Elder is based in Moscow for The Guardian newspaper. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, how Nika, the wild Rothschild, broke barriers for Thelonious Monk and his band. Nika either would have to either smuggle these musicians up in the service elevators, or when she was feeling slightly more kind of like having a major fight, she would march through the lobby. You know, of course, this scandalized the hotel management. 
WERIs, the world is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. This is a big day for Mitt Romney. He's poised to clinch the Republican presidential nomination with a win in the Texas primary. We've known for a while that Romney will be the GOP nominee, and we also know that Texas has been a red state for decades. That may change as the state's demographics change. Texas is now 37 percent Latino. Demographers say the state could be majority Latino in less than 20 years. And Texas Latinos have been voting overwhelmingly Democrat. But that wasn't always the case. The world's Jason Margolis has our story from Houston. In 2004, about half of Texas Latinos voted to re-elect George W. Bush. Four years later, the Republican presidential candidate John McCain captured only 35 percent of the Texas Latino vote. That doesn't make sense to Robin Lennon. She thinks Texas Latinos are natural conservatives. They're such hard workers. They believe in working hard. And I can't believe that if if you understand the value of hard work and, and, and earning your money, wanting the government to take it away to give it to people that don't work hard to, to, you know, to get their money. Robin and her husband Jim started the Kingwood Tea Party in 2009. They're based just north of Houston. The two say they have an open door for Latinos, but they're not actively recruiting them for this election cycle. We don't want them to think that we're only going after them in order to get them to vote our way in the primary. What we want to do is is establish a long-term goal. And that long-term goal for Texas? It's going to be a Republican-Latino state. You watch. I'll talk to you. talk to you in 10 years. But the Republican Party has a lot of work to do. went to a get-out-the-vote barbecue in southwest Houston. There were about 150 people there, mostly Latinos. I met people like 36-year-old Adan Gallegos, a U.S. citizen originally from Mexico. You know, I used to be Republican, but ever since they started the Latino bashing, I actually switched sides. I asked Gallegos what he meant by Latino bashing. He and others I met complained about the Republican Party's harsh rhetoric on immigration control. And they rattled off complaints about the Republican-controlled Texas legislature. This is Ray Guerra. The state legislature here effectively defunded education here. The people that are most affected by that are the Latino and African-American communities. Texas lawmakers cut education funding by roughly $5.4 billion in its latest budget. Texas school districts have been laying off teachers, dropping classes, and eliminating school bus services. Another contentious issue here is the new Texas law requiring voters to have a photo ID. The U.S. Justice Department rejected the requirement earlier this year, saying it unfairly discriminates against Latinos who are less likely than Anglos to have a photo ID. The case is being challenged in court. At the barbecue, children took swings at a piñata. Carlos Duarte with the group Mi Familia Vota handed out post-it notes. What I want you to write down is the obstacle that has prevented you from voting. What we're going to do with that, we're going to post it on the piñata, and we're going to have the youth break that piñata, symbolizing that this time the Latino community is ready to overcome all of the obstacles to civic participation. People wrote down things ranging from a poorly informed community to apathy. 
Some in the Latino community may be galvanized, but breaking the piñata remains largely symbolic. Houston is 44% Latino, but even though some Tea Partiers say they are reaching out to Latinos, Mark Jones, a political scientist at Rice University in Houston, says politicians haven't paid them much attention. Ignore's probably too strong, but they certainly don't actively cultivate the votes of Hispanics. Jones says Texas Latinos vote in far lower numbers than Latinos in states like California. He says this is due to a weaker Democratic Party in Texas and the lack of a charismatic Latino leader in Houston and Dallas. And in the past, Texas Republicans have played smart politics. What Republicans, uh, particularly the more pragmatic ones, have tried to do is a dual strategy. Keep Hispanics from having an issue around which to mobilize, thereby keeping Hispanic turnout low, and not doing anything that pushes Hispanics who normally would vote Republican to vote Democratic. Some Republicans I met are worried that this playbook is being ignored. Houston attorney Jacob Monte sits on the board of directors for the new group, Hispanic Republicans of Texas. His great-grandfather crossed the Rio Grande and moved to El Paso. Monty says Republican policies on immigration have been, quote, a disaster since 2004. The Republicans need to wake up on this issue because if they don't, if their Hispanic numbers don't improve, we're going to become a minority party. Up in Kingwood, I asked Jim and Robin Lennon, the Tea Party supporters, how they expect some of their policies to appeal to Latinos. For example, the deep education cuts that disproportionately affect Latino students. Let me ask you a question. What, what, what percentage of the budget in the state of Texas goes to public education? It's 57 percent. It's a huge number. A good 20 percent of that goes to taking care of the children of illegal aliens. At what point do you say it's enough? That may well resonate with fiscal conservatives, but it may not be the kind of language likely to appeal to a new generation of Latino voters in Texas. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Houston. You can see photos of the Latino voters at that barbecue at theworld.org. Consider for a moment this song. That is Thelonious Monk playing not the piano, but the celeste, those bell-like tones in the introduction to the song. The song itself is titled Panonica. Monk composed it for a woman named Panonica, the Baroness Panonica de Königswarter, to be accurate. Now, Monk didn't compose songs for any woman, but Panonica, or Nika, was different. To start with, she was a Rothschild, the wealthy Jewish dynasty that essentially was the Bank of Europe for hundreds of years. How Nika came to be the muse and benefactor for Thelonious Monk is what her great-niece Hannah Rothschild focused on in her book, The Baroness, The Search for Nika, The Rebellious Rothschild. Uh, Hannah Rothschild, incredible story here. Some jazz aficionados will know some of the broad strokes of Nika's and Monk's story, but you did some serious digging and research. Before we get to that relationship, though, fill us in a bit on her background. She was born in 1913 into the Rothschild family and the first half of your book kind of reads like uh, Downton Abbey, but with Jews and with, of course, <laughs> the backdrop of growing European anti-Semitism. What were the formative events then that would guide Nika later in life? Well, interestingly, so she was 13, of course, is the year before the First World War. So her first introduction to life was 
one of, you know, actually heartbreak and people not coming home. And then during that war, her father, um, Charles, who suffered from a kind of mental disorder, if you like, became more and more depressed. And after the war, like many other people, he caught Spanish flu encephalitis. And actually in 1923, he killed himself. So her early years were really marred by terrible tragedy. And the only great things during her childhood were animals. They were a family that loved animals, were surrounded by animals. And also music, because her father had an early record player and would be sent many jazz records from America. So Nika's connection with Thelonious Monk, at first it was very impressionistic. I mean, she heard his masterpiece composition Round Midnight, and it was as if she had just discovered fire. How and when did they initially meet, and what was the attraction? Well, it's extraordinary, the story. She was actually, three years before she met him, in 1951, she was on her way from Europe to Mexico, where her husband was the ambassador, the French ambassador to Mexico. And she stopped off to see a friend, a pianist called Teddy Wilson. And he said, have you ever heard Round Midnight by Felonius Monk? She said, I've never heard of Felonius Monk. Anyway, so he put it on the turntable, and it was literally like a vinyl version of a spell being cast. And she never went home. And she talks about it. She said, I played it 20 times in a row and I never went home. able to communicate with her about that or is this through journals of hers well, that you luckily read? I mean there's I didn't meet her very very often I met her in 1984 1985 and 1986 and it was the first thing I did when I went to America for the first time was to call her up and I was very very nervous and I had her telephone number and I rang her up and said hi um I'm your great niece and there was an incredible pause and then she went wild which is not quite what you expect from a 71-year-old great-aunt. And she said, come and meet me, you know, at a club round about midnight, of course. (laughs) And I went downtown and completely terrified. And the only instruction she'd given me, she said, it's on 23rd Street. The only instruction she gave me was, was look out for the Bentley. (laughs) Okay, that's not necessarily the kind of normal, you know, kind of instructions you'd get to go and find somewhere. But indeed, parked kind of diagonally, half obstructing 23rd Street was this Bentley. And next to it, there was a flight of steps, went downstairs to a club, and that's where she was. And indeed, that's where she could be found in a jazz club in New York every night of the week. Right. Now, at this point, uh, Thelonious Monk was still alive in 84? No, he died in 82. In 82. Sadly, I never met him. And in fact, he'd spent the last 10 years of his life in her house in Weehawken, Mm. just across the river, not playing an instrument, really hardly doing anything. He would get up, get dressed, and then lie down again. Right. One thing that did strike me, though, both of them, both Monk and Nika, had kind of a history of mental illness in their families. What's the significance of that? Well, my feeling, again, I was trying to explore why these two very different and disparate people should, you know, end up being such close friends. And one connection that I think is, you know, holds water Monk's father um, was a manic depressive. Certainly, you know, it showed all the signs of manic depression. 
Nika's father was a schizophrenic who was, you know, driven so distracted by his depression that he took his own life. Monk was diagnosed as a schizophrenic as well. And I really believe that there was some atmosphere, some thing that she saw around Monk that reminded her of her childhood. Mm. And I think that she wanted to help Monk. I think that she couldn't help her father. Nobody could help her father. But I think that she really felt that here was a man she could help, that she did understand. She wasn't frightened of his strange episodes, of his more outlandish behavior, because she'd been brought up with that. Now, Monk was married already to a woman named Nellie, and Nika and Monk uh, clearly, from your account, loved each other. But were they lovers? And how did Nellie rationalize sharing her husband with this Jewish noblewoman in furs from across the pond? Good question. And of course, that's what everyone, well, not everybody wants to know, but I mean, you know, what was at the heart of this relationship? Mm. And I asked every single person who was close to them, who was still alive, look, did you see any touchy-feely stuff, on for better expression? Mm -hmm. And everybody said, absolutely not. It wasn't like that. And I think for Nellie, who had been with him since she was 13, who'd suffered, you know, incredible penury and hardship through her husband not actually earning any money, was frankly quite delighted when this rather rich, you know, woman appeared with a checkbook and Mm. a fabulous Bentley and, you know, absolute unstinting devotion. I'm not saying that, you know, the Monk family used Nika by any, you know, because I think it was a completely mutual interest and dependency. But I think they weren't too bothered that she was, you know, so passionately keen on supporting him. Now, aside from the electric relationship between Monk and Nika, this is a very romantic book for jazz lovers. I'd like you to describe the scenes at some of the after-hours parties with those jazz cats at the Stanhope, that's a hotel in New York where Nika lived. I mean, to start with, how was she able to get all these black musicians inside that segregated hotel? That was a problem. So, And so Nika you know, would have to either smuggle these musicians up in the service elevators or when she was feeling slightly more kind of like having a major fight, she would march through the lobby, you know, with a musician basically holding one hand and, you know, one with the other hand and the instruments, and they would walk straight through. And, of course, this scandalised the um, hotel management. Anyway, so she insisted that her newfound friends should come back to her her apartment in the hotel. She insisted they should order whatever they felt like. And this is after kind of staying up till 2 a.m. on 52nd Street listening to everybody there. Well, exactly. So they make their way back in the Bentley. The Bentley will be parked badly outside the stand-up. You know, (laughs) in they go, you know, let's order whatever you want from room service. And then the real sessions would start. So, and of course... On 52nd Street, lots of the great musicians were playing in separate little clubs, but that, of course, didn't apply in her apartment. So she had these kind of super groups. People who would never get to play together played together in her suite, and she thought it was incredible. It was incredible. (laughs) Incredible. I mean, can you imagine? And, of course, she recorded lots of that stuff, and the tapes are still in the possession of her children, and hopefully one day they'll come out and they'll be heard by all of us jazz lovers. Yeah, we hope. Hannah Rothschild is the author of The Baroness, A Search for Nika, the Rebellious Rothschild. Thank you very much for bringing out this story about your great aunt and Thelonious Monk. It's a really good read. Thank you so much. You can see a video of Hannah Rothschild explaining various theories on how bebop sax legend Charlie Parker died in Nika's New York apartment in 1955. That's at theworld.org.
This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A type of bumblebee figures in today's geoquiz, the Bombus subterraneus. The species of bumblebee is better known as the short-haired bumblebee. It died out in Britain 25 years or so ago and was declared extinct. One of the nails in this bee's tiny coffin was the loss of wildflower meadows. So conservationists came up with the idea of going outside Britain to find some healthy queen specimens. They targeted a Nordic country on the Scandinavian peninsula. So that's what we're looking for in the quiz today, and we're hoping that you can name this bumblebee-friendly province at the southernmost tip of the Scandinavian peninsula. It's a province where wildflowers are still abundant, and there are plenty of these little pollinators flying around. So let's go now to Nikki Gammons, who's in charge of reintroducing the short-haired bumblebee to the UK. Nikki, where did you find these queen bees? So I found them in the province of Skuna, and it's spelled S-K-A-N-E. Um, and this area is mainly open farmland, which is where this species is typical of. It doesn't like wooded areas. It likes sort of open areas, uh, typically wildflower meadows. How did you find them? So what we did is we walked along areas, um, sort of roadside verges, farmland, edge of golf courses. And we were looking for a particular flower called white dead nettle. And that's uh, one of the early foraging flowers for this bumblebee. It's not the only one, but it's, it's one of the most numerous in, in Sweden. And basically what we do with a team of volunteers is I walked out with our nets and we were just walking along these flower-rich habitats and netting um, all the queen bumblebees that we saw. And we then put them into vials Mm. and then storing them in a fridge ready to take them back to the UK. Now, you started this reintroduction already yesterday. Tell us where you released uh, these first 100 short-haired bees. So we released them at the RSPB Reserve, which is the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, in Dungeness, which is the south of Kent. So it's a very rich shingle habitat. Now, you can't really put GPS trackers on on bumblebees. So how are you going to follow their progress? Yeah, so what we've um, decided to do is, is release them and sort of let them decide where they want to go. If we did put things like GPS trackers or satellite trackers on, we don't know how the extra weight may affect the queen. It may affect less pollen load that she can carry. It may affect her nest uh, digging abilities. It may even make her more susceptible to predation. So what we do is I have a team of 20 volunteers and we have a number of surveys that we will be undertaking across all of this habitat that we have created and managed for this bumblebee's return. So if uh, the bumblebee's extinction was triggered in the UK by its habitat being destroyed, the the wildflower meadows, what's going to be done to ensure that the bees survive this time? We've been working a lot with farms and landowners to recreate a huge amount of habitat. And what we've done is we've created corridors coming out of the release sites so they can spread into new areas. One of the big problems with loss of habitat is you get isolated populations And this is quite dangerous because they start to become inbred and the mouths become infertile. So the most important thing is creating corridors of habitat where they can spread out eventually around the southeast of England. What kind of plants and flowers attract bees, Nikki? And what should we be doing in North American backyards and gardens to help with this effort? Well, lupins are actually a fantastic flower 
for bumblebees. They provide, yeah, they provide both nectar and pollen. Um, I guess you guys have lavender mm-hmm. as well. Lavender, again, is one of the best of the best. And it's not only good for bumblebees, other bees. It's also good for moths and butterflies as well. So it sort of ticks lots of boxes. What do you feel is going to be the best hope for this conservation experiment? I mean, do you think other bee species will have to be rescued this way eventually? Well, what we're hoping is to send out a message really is let's not let this happen again. Let's not let a bee go extinct again anywhere really in Europe, in the Northern Hemisphere. If you create and maintain the right amount of habitat, this will prevent our bees declining and becoming isolated. This bee had a second chance. Now, it's not... The usual that extinct any species will actually get a second chance, and this bee has, but we can't let this happen again to our bumblebees. Nikki, you say this bumblebee extinction must not happen again. Tell us what's at stake. Well, they're incredibly important pollinators. They pollinate many of our soft fruit and vegetables, tomatoes, strawberries, and many of our most popular fruit and veg. If they start to decline, our yields and our production of these fruit and veg will start to decline, And of course, they pollinate also many of our wildflowers as well, which rely on bees. So we could see if bumblebee numbers start to keep declining as they are doing, we could start to see a change in our ecosystems and in our farming. Nikki Gammons is in charge of the Short-Haired Bumblebee Reintroduction Project in Britain. She also gave us the answer to our geoquiz today, the Swedish province of Skuna. Nikki, thank you very much for speaking with us and good luck. Thank you. Cheers. Pollination is also a metaphor for the world of music. Take, for example, how a few years ago young musicians with Angolan roots and living in Portugal hit upon a new fresh sound. The band Baraka Som Sistema took the Angolan dance style known as Kuduro and injected it with techno beats. Kuduro literally means hard ass, and the dance itself is upbeat and energetic, making derriere shake from Luanda to Lisbon. Baraka Som Sistema became known worldwide for that. Now comes another take on Kuduro. This is Batida, a project launched by Angolan Portuguese musician Pedro Cocanao, a.k.a. DJ Mpula. He cups his ear more toward Angolan influences and less toward the Portuguese Western sound. The samples he employs for Batida come from Angola's rich tradition of soulful and sometimes psychedelic music from the 1970s. That's a track called Alegria. It begins with a heavy techno groove, but then DJ Mpula drops a sample from an Angolan pop song from the 70s. The sample here comes from Esther Madonna by Alias Macchiadi. That's one of the great things about the just released Batida album. It includes the titles and artists from which the samples were taken. So it's not just a great dance album, it's also a wealth of information and a tasting menu of old school Angolan music. This track is titled Saudaji. 
Tunes like this show that Batita always seems to be rocking a party. But while the beats are chugging along, DJ Mpula has composed lyrics that serve as social and political commentary. In Saudade, for example, he wishes a better future for Angola. In Portuguese, DJ Mpula gets his hackles up, though, and sings, One day these neo-colonialists will be brought to justice when so-called democracy really exists. That's our program today. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Marco Werman, and you can always find the program online at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I thank you for tuning in. Passar pelos becos do Rangel com Lele, agora veja. Casquel com Nando, Milvo, Joca, Paizinho, Gangue. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Supported by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By contributors to the PRI Program Fund and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.